Hey everyone, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Welcome back. Hi. And uh, no more, I'm not going lightly on y'all anymore. This, I know. This episode's going to be a full deep dive doozy. Oh, I know. <laughs> but it's good to be back. It is good to be back. Yep. Do you have any business to take care of? Literally can't think of anything at the top of my head. I know. I can't. We've had lots of nice messages asking if I'm okay. Some people, I got a message today. Someone was saying I sound down and different. I don't mean to. Just tired. Just tired. I've been, and also I don't, if you've listened to previous podcasts, I do have lupus. What's that mean? You're just tired from. So it's. Some some days are just off, but I'm very happy. After a while, it just wears on you. Like I just need a break. (laughs) Yeah, you get tired and worn out, but I'm still plugging. Yeah, you are a little trooper. (laughs) A little trooper, and this is going to make me feel a whole lot better after this. So the fact that this makes you feel better, it doesn't. I was being. I I know it's awful. I was being very facetious, but um, yeah. So I've been far too easy on y'all for far too long. Today we're going to go back to our most evil roots, and we're going to cover a guy who I surprisingly knew very little about until a listener actually recommended him. Oh, Lord. So please know that a listener recommended him. I did not pick him on my own. Yeah, usually those are the worst ones. Yeah, y'all are crazy. <laughs> y'all, know some, some, y'all know some shit. Peter Curtin, also known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Oh, Lord. Another, va- But it's not what you think. So he earned his title after after committing a series of murders and sexual assaults in Germany in the late 20s and 30s. No, I know who this dude is. You do? Yeah. Okay. And before these murders, Curtin amassed quite a stealthy criminal record of offenses, including arson and attempted murder. And listen, I know some of y'all get really bored with the older cases. I, I know what you mean. But trust me when I tell you that this one is not boring. It has all the horrors and more of a modern-day sex-driven serial killer study, and it's literally horrifying from start to finish. And that's actually a good note, though, is let us know which one. Some of y'all love when we do the old-school ones, like the late 1800s, early 1900s, and some of y'all just want to hear you know, some of the more new-age stuff, so... Let us know. Yeah, I tend to love the older cases, but I know that a lot of people steer away from the, you know, more vintage cases. This one's gripping. So I like the older ones because I know less about them, right? You can turn right. on the TV and watch a show about Dahmer and Gacy and Bundy and any of Right, these exactly. Uh, yeah, these ones you don't really hear often about, which is cool. Well, Peter was one sick dude to say the very least. Not only did he rape and torture men, women, and children for his own sick pleasure, he also fine-tuned his sadism by practicing on animals. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. He didn't care who his victims were, really. He just wanted a victim. So please know that today we are not going to tread lightly when it comes to the life and crimes of this disgusting human This whole episode will be triggering, so please listen accordingly. And as always, we will be as respectful as possible to the victims involved, especially the children. Oh, of course. We never love to cover cases where children are victims, but unfortunately, children make easy targets for psychopaths like Peter Curtin. So without further ado, because this is going to be quite the deep dive, Let's do what we do best here at Evil Pudding and take a peek into Peter Curtin's childhood to see if this monster was born or made.
Peter Curtin was born on May 26, 1883 in Mulheim am Rhein. Okay, these are German names, and I'm Courtney, so I don't English very well. You're going to butcher them. We get it. Yeah. It's okay. I'll probably butcher them if I try to, so. <laughs> so Mulheim, and am Rhein means on the Rhine. On the Rhine. Yeah. And Mulheim was across the river Rhine opposite of the burgeoning city of Cologne, which we, we've heard of Cologne, right. you and I. I was unable to find the name of Peter's mother. Every source I found gave her a different name. So for the purposes of this episode, I'll just call her Peter's mom. That works. That's pretty descriptive. Now, Peter did not grow up wealthy by any means. His father, whose name was Hare Curtin, worked a meager job as a molder. And a molder is someone who creates metal castings in a factory. And whatever hair curtain earned, he would spend on sex workers and alcohol. And trust me, this family needed the money. Peter was the eldest of a grand total of 13 children, all of which lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, Lord. Now, just because you grow up poor does not mean you grow up miserable and unhappy. No, no. But unfortunately, this is not one of those cases. Peter's father was abusive. And the word abusive is a gross understatement. When his father would come stumbling in from the bar at night, he would regularly line up all 13 children against the wall of their tiny bedroom and force them to watch as he beat and raped their mother. Wow. If the children were lucky, all of their their father's rage would be focused on their mother. But if one of them dared to look away in horror, which naturally you would, especially as a child... Hair Curtin would beat the offender who dared to avert their gaze. Beyond the brutality in the home, Hair Curtin wanted absolutely nothing to do with the children. And many people might say, well, why didn't the mother just leave, you know? But it's important to note the time period. It's the late 1800s and early 1900s. And also marital rape was not considered a crime in Germany, surprisingly, until 1997, which I couldn't believe. And they're dirt poor, so it's not like she right. can afford to just bounce. So, unfortunately, at that time, Herr Curtin had a legal basis for absolutely everything he was doing in his marital home. And moreover, if Peter's mother were to leave along with her 13 kids, she would have been considered a social pariah with little to no means of support. So, what you're saying is German social standards are not the greatest back then. <laughs> well... Not for the another, Curtin family, that's for, for sure. Not for 50 years at least. We know that for sure. <laughs> yeah, they went through. So we'll, we'll get in that, to that part too. <laughs> we'll, we kind of cross all the historical boundaries. Or I'm historical just saying lines. the morality levels of that time period in Germany wouldn't hold a candle to much right now. I'm just yeah, throwing it out there. You get to see kind of the um, the government go a little backwards, backwards, as we like to say. So unfortunately, this was the awful reality of Peter's childhood. And of course his siblings. Things outside of the curtain home were just as bad. Peter was, for lack of a better word, emotionless and unaffected by day-to-day life. Peter was, for lack of a better word, emotionless and unaffected by day-to-day life. He lacked the capability to feel anything, including humor, sadness, fear, etc., which some may chalk up to a burgeoning case of psychopathy, or maybe he had just become numb altogether after years of watching his mother being brutalized. 
Either way, as you can imagine, Peter did not make friends easily at all, which means he was very isolated and he was a very lonely child. This left Peter a prime target for predators. Enter the dog catcher. The what? The dog catcher. Like the actual dog catcher? We don't have a name, but we know that he was a dog catcher. Like a real dog catcher. Yeah. So an adolescent Peter befriended one of his adult neighbors, a dog catcher who worked for the municipality. Well, this guy took a special interest in eight or nine-year-old Peter. This adult man would take Peter out on his cart that he drove to catch stray dogs in the neighborhood. It was during these seemingly benign excursions that he would introduce the child to torturing these poor animals and sadism as a whole. I won't go into detail, but when Peter saw what this man was doing to these poor animals, I think that any normal child would have recoiled and ran in fear, but Peter didn't. He was different. He was numb to the pain and suffering of others, and he craved the sort of release that he saw these adult men getting when they inflicted pain and torture on other living creatures. However, long story short, Peter was not sexually mature enough. He was only eight. So for now, he would just have to be an observer. Oh. Very disturbing. No, I mean, this kid's grown up around this kind of abuse, so it's... He's nothing. never known anything different. Yeah, that's all he knows. Like, it's normal for him to see dogs, humans, whatever, being beaten at their will. Ugh. And listen, Peter's a child. I'm not faulting him for any of this. I'm just telling his story. But, and this is according to Peter much later on, his cravings for the same, quote, release he had seen men have when they committed acts of violence just became too much for him to handle. So at nine years old, Peter Curtin committed his very first murder. Nine. Of a person? Of a person. Holy shnikes. Here, let me tell you about it. Please do. Lighten that shit. You can't just drop that and move on. So So Peter went to school and as part of reforms at the time in Germany's education system, the school implemented this program where boys would be taken out of the classroom and they could do outdoor activities that were loosely supervised. Like a teacher would be around, but not necessarily involved or keeping a super close eye on them, right? So on this day, Peter and his two male classmates gathered and fashioned together a raft that would carry them down the River Rhine, which is, by the way, a very calm river. There's not like white water rapids, you right. know, so it's a safe raft journey or It's whatever. also a very large river. It's very large. But it was a relatively safe venture for the boys. And at the end of their course, there would be a teacher waiting for them. So they could float for a while and then a teacher would meet them, right? Well, Peter was on the raft with the two boys. And after some time passed and Peter's raft rounded the corner to return where the teacher was supposed to meet them, the teacher was shocked to find that Peter was alone on his raft. Upon the teacher questioning Peter as to what happened to his classmates, Peter gave an Oscar-worthy performance and explained to her how one of his classmates could not swim, and when he had fallen in, the other classmate had tried to rescue him, only to be dragged down into the deep by his body weight. He was, Peter was very upset, it seemed like. He was even crying. He produced tears and everything. But as a nine-year-old boy, no suspicion would ever fall on him, and the deaths were declared accidental. It was just, you know, an accident, a tragic accident. 
However, Peter, now a blossoming sexual sadist, had just achieved his first sexually satisfying kill, if you catch my drift without saying it. He experienced the same release that he had seen his father and the dog catcher achieve by inflicting harm on to others. He also had just committed a double homicide at nine years old. Double homicide at nine. Peter achieved pleasure by holding his classmates underwater while they drowned. And as a nine-year-old boy, he had gotten away with it. As of now, Peter felt invincible and powerful, even godlike. But even at nine, he knew that he couldn't just simply go out and kill again. That would, of course, draw unwanted attention. So he settled for torturing animals in his neighborhood alongside his dog catcher friend for the next several years. That is, until the man was finally arrested. The dog catcher was arrested. Right, yeah. Leaving a now older and much stronger Peter Curtin without an outlet to release his growing appetite. Now, Peter's father was still very much in the picture, unfortunately. Herr Curtin was still torturing and beating his wife and children, and because Peter had his own interests, he tended to spend a lot of time away from home, sometimes even staying at his now incarcerated friend's apartment. Oh. He had a key to the dog catcher's apartment. Well, Peter also began dating a girl. However, much to his disdain, his new girlfriend did not want to consummate their relationship at all, and no amount of wooing was going to work on her. So this left Peter frustrated and needing a, quote, release. (laughs) So, once again, he turned to animals. According to the father of true crime, in my opinion, author Ryan Green. Oh, yeah, your boy. Um, He wrote the book, The Monster Within. Ryan states, quote, It is impossible to say how many times Peter Curtin committed acts of bestiality in his early teens. Initially, he would claim that it was the the one time that he was caught with a pig in the local stables. But by that point, he had already developed a fairly sophisticated routine, end quote. And major trigger warning here. Please skip ahead 20 seconds or so if you don't want to hear a quick detail about Peter's assault on animals. Mm. Can I skip ahead? (laughs) No, you have to stay. Sorry. (laughs) So also according to author Ryan Green, quote, Peter found it increasingly difficult to achieve an orgasm through penetration alone. He soon discovered that if he hurt the animal while having sex with them, they would buck and attempt to dislodge him, creating a more intense experience, end quote. That's disgusting. It's awful. And this is a teenage Peter. Yeah. So in planner terms, Peter liked his victims to struggle and be in pain. Yep. Which we gathered. And that's as deep as I'll go into that. Thank you. But I felt it was important to add, excuse me, this part in so that we have an idea of how Peter's sadism is evolving, right? And it will also give us an idea as to what some of his future victims endured, unfortunately. That's kind of terrifying, but okay. It is. It's very terrifying. So as we just said just a little while ago, things at Peter's home had not improved. And circumstances were about to reach a fever pitch inside the Curtin home. Hair Curtin, Peter's father, was no longer sexually abusing his wife, but rather he was turning his attentions onto his teenage daughter, Peter's sister. 
One day, Peter's mom came home from begging for food to feed her family, only to find her husband beating and raping her daughter in their marital bed. Mm. Now, whereas marital rape was not a crime back then, incest was. So Peter's mother went straight to the police, and thankfully, Hair Curtin was thrown into prison, and his wife was allowed to divorce him. So that's a good thing, right? Should be. Since his abusive father was now out of the picture, Peter decided to return home. And for a time, he even helped to support his mom and siblings. He was working a factory job, and he took on the role as the man of the house, even preparing meals for the kids. Peter's mom was honestly the happiest she had ever been. All of her children were safe under one roof, and thanks to her eldest son, there was now food on the table. One day, Peter's mom came home from the market, anxious to make dinner for her children. She opened the door and was horrified to find Peter raping his teenage sister, the same sister that his father had assaulted not too long ago. Wow. And it gets worse. Just as his father had done, Peter had lined up his siblings and forced each of them to watch as he inflicted horrors on their sister. Wow. Just like his father used to do. His mother instantly began to beat her oldest son. But in a show of his, I guess you could say, misplaced masculinity, I don't know what to call it, Peter wrestled his mother to the ground and sat on top of her as if to prove to her that he could dominate her whenever he wanted to. He bent down, gave his mother a kiss on the cheek, and then ran away, knowing full well that his mother would be calling the police, and they would soon be after him. By the time the second oldest curtain boy had ran and gotten help, Peter was long gone, and all ties to his family were now irrevocably severed. I did. So that's just his childhood. Oh, that's just the childhood. All right. Yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, he's not even 16. Wow. So it's 1899. Peter's about 15, 16 years old, and he's on the run knowing cops will be on his tail. He stops by the factory where he works, steals a bunch of money from the safe, and makes his way down the Rhine River to the town of Koblenz, where he falls into a life of petty crime, burglaries, and things of the like. Before long, Peter was caught burglarizing a business, and he was arrested and thrown into jail for a mere few months. And you're going to see a lot of that. He does, I can't even remember how many stints in jail. We see that a lot with just a with ton of rules like this. Yeah. A couple nights stays, a couple weeks stays. Yeah. The authorities in Koblenz, of course, had no knowledge of his attack in his hometown. So his punishment wasn't steep by any means. No. The towns didn't talk back then. Peter was released in August of 1899. And by that November, his sexual urges had reached the point of overpowering all of his inhibitions. So he made the choice to act on them. Of course he did. Peter met an 18-year-old girl and somehow convinced her to accompany him on a visit to a place called Hofgarten in Dusseldorf. I need to say that. Dusseldorf? Hofgarten! (laughs) Which, it was like a park of cultivated gardens in the city. Basically, it was just a place that Peter felt he could get this young woman alone away from the public eye. Basically, it was just a place that Peter felt he could get this young woman alone away from the public eye. Once he had her alone, he proceeded to sexually assault her. But much like with the animals he had raped before, 
he had found that he could not fully satisfy himself until he inflicted pain upon his victim. That's when he wrapped his hands around her throat and strangled her to death. According to Peter, this was his first kill, despite having taken two lives when he was just nine years old. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why he claims hers his first kill, since he had killed two others before, but maybe because this is the first woman? I don't know. Maybe this is that he really, maybe the other ones were he was seeing and experimenting or accidental. And this this was was like, or maybe this is the first time it was sexual that he was releasing. Mm-hmm. Well, he did release with the boys, apparently. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, I know. It's very uncomfy. We aren't sure if the young woman's body was ever found. There are no records of her death to support his story. However, this could be because of the destruction of records in post-war Germany, so it's hard to say. But whatever reason, Peter's crime, again, went unpunished. After this particular murder... Peter was somehow able to resist his sexual impulses and busy himself with basically running cons around town and stealing from people to survive. And once again, he was arrested and convicted on a single fraud charge. But before he had even begun to serve his time, the local papers ran his picture, alerting the public of the allegations against him. And this prompted a young woman to come forward publicly and accused Curtin of drawing and firing a gun on her when she refused to have sex with him. Luckily, the young woman escaped unharmed, but this meant that Peter, on top of the fraud charge, was now faced with an attempted murder charge, and he would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, which is good. He was only sentenced to four years of hard labor in Derendorf prison, and it was in this prison that I believe at least, Peter went from bad to worse. He spent most of his time alone because he was so uncooperative, and it was during these years of solitude that Curtin began to hate people. He hated everyone and wanted to punish and kill any and everyone for all of his misfortunes in life. Yeah, it's their fault. A quote from the book, A Monster Within, states, quote, Over the course of his months in solitary confinement, The mild fantasies that he had once conjured up began to evolve. They went from the idle thoughts of sex and violence that had once flitted through his head to fully-fledged phantasmagorical experiences. Love that word. Phantasmagorical. Okay. He would sit in solitary confinement, perfectly still, and run them through one after another, tweaking and adjusting them to maximize his pleasure. End quote. So that's good. Yeah, great. Give him, give him some time to perfect his craft. Give that's basically what happened. Think about his skills and get him better. Jeez. Now he was outside of the prison walls. He served his time. Now outside of the prison walls, Germany at this time wasn't a country that was taken seriously in Europe because it was a baby nation and not very powerful. Germany had lost almost everything that it had claimed in its last war with France, and there was an an internal rise of powerful Germans who longed to prove to the world that the German people were the best that mankind had to offer, and they needed to prove it. We all know where this goes, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, they they had a fully modernized army, artillery, and even train lines to transport all of this. 
They were poised and ready to force other imperial powers to acknowledge them and make concessions. However, the only problem with this plan was that it would require a commitment to war and working toward a common goal, which means they needed bodies. They needed they needed men in the imperial army, even if it meant recruiting the worst of the worst from the prisons. And so that means that Peter Curtin was offered a full pardon for his crimes in exchange for his immediate recruitment into the imperial army. And in the summer of 1904, Peter was assigned to the 98th Infantry Regiment and was transported by train to the city of Metz for training camp. He's in the army. Of course, why not? Well, Peter completed his training, but he was far from a good soldier, as you can imagine. He was not thrilled with the idea of serving his country by any means. He hated his country. He hated everyone. By summer's end, he was all set for deployment. But instead of deploying, he deserted. And he was now on the run from the Imperial Army. I don't know much about the Imperial Army. I don't think you want to be on the run from them. (laughs) they They kind of evolved into something I wouldn't want to be running from. No. Well, he went on to live a nomadic lifestyle for the time. He was just meandering from one farming community to another. In the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that Peter Curtin was a known arsonist. Well, this is where that comes into play. Since Peter had to live away from the public eye as a deserter of the Imperial Army, he often slept in old barns. I can promise you, you don't want Peter in your barn. Yeah, no. (laughs) Well, many other homeless people at the time, they were doing the same thing. And they would leave just before the crack of dawn so as not to be caught by the farm workers, right? So it was during this time that Peter discovered setting fire to a barn full of homeless people would allow him to achieve the same degree of sexual pleasure as his previous crimes. There are, once again, no official records to show just how many people Peter killed during his they call, the book I read called it The Culling of the Homeless Population. Wow. But as a youth, Peter learned just how little authorities cared about the death or disappearances of those less fortunate. And it was far easier to get away with killing an unhoused person or a sex worker. And the same is true today, right? And he learned that back early. Yeah. In 1904 Germany, that was definitely the case. Oh, I bet. <laughs> So he continued his arson throughout the fall and most of winter. So he went on doing this quite a while. But by New Year's, the Imperial Military Police finally caught up with him. The weightiest of his crimes that he had committed in the eyes of the law was, of course, his desertion. That's a huge no-no. But every other criminal act that he had committed since strolling out of the military camp in Metz had been documented and weighed against him as well. So he was found out for, at the very least, a few of his arsons. Peter would ultimately be sentenced to eight years of imprisonment in the military prison of Munster in North Rhine, Westphalia. It was here that Peter would spend a shocking, I couldn't believe this, 90% of his eight-year sentence in solitary confinement for being a nuisance in prison and not doing anything the guards commanded. 90% of eight years is a very long time. That's nearly seven and a half years in solitude. That's crazy to me. Imagine it's over that. seven and a half years. Jeez. 
And that was definitely not good for his already feeble and volatile mental state. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not over seven and a half, but it's close. You're right. Ryan Green states, quote, he wanted to kill everything that had ever been until there was only him dreaming of killing it all over again, ecstatic in the pleasure of the slaughter, greater than anyone that had ever existed, end quote. Exactly eight years after his sentence began, Peter Curtin was released and he was more angry and vengeful than ever before. On the 25th of May, 1913, Peter would release all of that vengeance on his next victim, a nine-year-old little girl named Christine Klein. Wow. And although I will not go into great detail of this murder because it's just unnecessary, it's still triggering, right? Because there, there are a few children that we're going to touch on in this episode. So Christine Klein's family owned an inn and her bedroom sat right above it. Now, because Christine grew up sleeping above the area where everyone drank and danced at night, she was a very heavy sleeper. Mm -hmm. She knew how to sleep through some noise, right? So she never even heard Peter Curtin as he pried open her window just enough so that he could reach in and reach the nine-year-old girl that was sleeping. Peter actually choked Christine while hanging outside of her window, just his top half in her room. Oh. Right before she fell limp, he took out a knife and cut her throat. He then more or less arranged Christine's clothes so that it looked like a rape before he cleaned himself up and fled the scene. Now, when Christine's body was discovered, it was big news. And for a time, her uncle, Otto Klein, was the authority's number one suspect. And poor Otto, the chips were just stacked against him, and this is crazy to me, um, because near Christine's body, a handkerchief was found with the initials PK embroidered into the corner. You and I both know this stands for Peter Curtin. But unfortunately for Otto Klein, Christine's father and the owner of the inn was named uh, Peter Klein. Mm. So it was a theory that Otto had asked Peter for a loan. Peter denied him one. And Otto stole stuff from his brother to include that handkerchief. Right? Luckily... That was the only evidence tying Otto right. to the crime. So he was cleared of all suspicion eventually. But wow, that could have easily gone sideways for the poor guy yeah, no who was innocent. And so Christine murder, Christine's murder remained unsolved, and Peter went on to commit more atrocities. In the weeks to come, Peter would set over a half dozen fires in non-densely populated areas but it wasn't long before he would enter the home of his next victim, 17-year-old Gertrude Franken. Gertrude was just sleeping in her bed as Peter entered her room and climbed on top of her. He instantly began to strangle her before she even fully woke up from her sleep. As she was jolted awake, unable to breathe, she accidentally bit down on her own tongue mm. and blood started to come out of her mouth. Awful. Poor thing. Can you imagine waking up to this and just the sheer terror where yeah, you're not no. sure if it's a dream or what just, even, what's even going on? Right. But she was trying to fight Peter off of her. And this is awful. But Peter, in that moment, claims that he climaxed as she went limp beneath him. And he fled thinking that Gertrude was dead. But thankfully, she survived the horrific attempt on her life. Thank God. Wow. 
Thanks to Gertrude being brave enough to get help and give the police a good description of her assailant, Peter Curtin was eventually arrested again. He was sent to another military prison in Brieg for a time, for a term of six years for this. Okay. So he was actually caught. But his behavior was so bad, once again, within prison walls, that uh, time was added to his sentence. So in total, Peter would serve eight years before once again being released in April of 1921. So this dude's done 20 years pretty much already. Oh, yeah. So he got sentenced to six years, and he's just insubordinate in prison, and time keeps getting added. Yeah. I mean, but he's already done an eight-year sentence. Yeah, before already that. already done a four-year sentence. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But this time, Peter would choose a different path, <laughs> one that we see many serial killers take. Peter had no attention to walk the straight and narrow, of course, but he was prepared to, quote, appear as, he, as if he was a law-abiding citizen, uh, yeah. right? okay. So now, as a nearly 38-year-old man, Peter chose to appear somewhat normal, blend in, so to speak, like he had it all together. But to do that, he needed a job and a wife. First, Peter got a factory job and joined a union. And, I mean, one thing about him is he's not a stupid man. He quickly climbed the ranks and um, even became a leader in his union And he was able to bank enough money to get a place of his own, all while subduing his urges to slaughter people. How noble of him. How noble. Then he met a woman by the name of August Scharf. Now, August, although a hardworking shop owner now, had quite the colorful past of her own. She had been in jail once for solicitation. I don't know why that's a hard word for me to say. And then her second time in jail was for killing her husband. Not funny, but... I mean, that's a pair right there. It's Bonnie and Clyde almost. It's like, good Lord. For most men, this would have scared them off. But for Peter, of course, this is no big deal. Well, that, hey, was a tu- that was a Tuesday for him. <laughs> How you doing? So most men, you know, this would have been like, no. But she thought she hit the jackpot with Peter. Now, although August was very open and honest with Peter about her past... He was more guarded with his. He wasn't prepared to let her know how cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs he really was. She probably was like, my husband beat me. I couldn't take it anymore, so I killed him. And he's like, well, it all started when I was nine. Yeah, (laughs) he didn't didn't tell her anything. Killed two kids then. Burned a few homeless people. It's actually called the culling now because I've killed so many of them in barn fires. Yeah, he was was more guarded with, with August. She had no clue. She just thought that he was a saint who accepted her. Wow. So thinking that she had struck the lottery with a man that would accept her in all of her past sins, August married Peter Curtin. Unfortunately, there was nothing about married life that satisfied Peter to include their sex life. Peter needed far more than he would ask August to give. So Peter did what he felt that, remember he's trying to be normal? Right. He did what he felt most normal, quote, men would do when they were not being fulfilled in their marriage he began to have affairs. So his first mistress was a woman named Teed. And in this relationship, Peter became very violent with her in the bedroom, like to the point of rendering her unconscious several times. As a result, Teed was like, you know what? This isn't for me. And she peaced out. So she began to distance herself from Peter. 
Then Peter started a relationship with another woman named Mech, and he treated her about the same as he treated Teed. It got to, I promise I'm going someplace with this. No, I got you. It got to the point where Mech started to question if this was rape or not, because Peter was definitely doing things to her in the bedroom against her will. And unfortunately, the laws regarding rape were not very well developed in the culture at that time. So in Mech's mind, she wasn't sure if she should go to the police or not. But, in quite the boss move, Teed and Mech, Peter's two now ex-lovers, met and decided to join forces and report this his disgusting behavior to the police. Teed was able to press charges for seduction, which I'm not really sure. That's weird. That. Okay. Yeah, that's very weird. And Mech was able to report that Peter had in fact raped her. Because of their bravery, Peter was tried and found guilty, but he was only sentenced to eight months in jail. Eight months, that's it. And even though she was very aware of her husband's disgusting crimes, Peter's wife, August, stood by his side throughout his incarceration. Who else is going to love me? In fact, she spent all of their life savings, all the money Peter had saved up, in a campaign to release her husband early under the condition that Peter leave the city of Dusseldorf. Mm. Her campaign was successful. After only serving six months of his sentence, Peter was released back to the streets with August. Oh. And they were broke. But, much to August's dismay, Peter chose not to listen to the court's and he decided to stay put and not leave the city because nobody nobody's going to tell him what to do. Right, no. Can't tell him what to do. And also, they were now completely broke, like I said. So they didn't even have the money to make the move anyplace else. They were kind of stuck. So obviously, things in Peter's life aren't great. They never were, but it's really tough right now. He's pissed at his wife for spending all of their money. And he's just angry in general at the world. He's a volcano waiting to erupt. On February 3rd of 1929, Peter erupted. Okay. Apollonia, which I think is a cool name, Apollonia Kuhn, was just a sweet middle-aged lady going about her business in Dusseldorf on this day when, from out of a row of bushes, Peter Curtin jumped out and grabbed her. He pulled her into the shrubbery before she ever had a chance to scream for help. Once he had her subdued into compliance, Peter pulled out a pair of iron scissors from his coat pocket and stabbed her repeatedly. Mm. At this time, even if Apollonia had wanted to scream to attract attention, she was unable to because her lungs had been punctured. When Peter was finished with the brutal attack, he was satisfied that she was dead He cleaned himself up and went about his business. To everyone's surprise, including Peter's, Apollonia survived. Wow. In the hospital, investigators were anxious to speak to Apollonia to get a description of her attacker. But unfortunately, she couldn't remember a thing due to the trauma of the attack. It happened so fast, too. Common, yeah. And thankfully... I'm glad. She, I'm kind of glad for her sake that she didn't remember. Didn't remember anything. Yeah. She knew it happened, but she doesn't have the memories of it. Yeah. Peter had escaped just with sheer luck. Once Peter heard that Apollonia wouldn't be a threat to his freedom, 
he suddenly felt invincible. Of course. He's done that every single time. Every time he kills somebody, he's like, I don't get caught. <laughs> After kills, he, he does mention he feels godlike. Mm-hmm. All, this is a reoccurring pattern with yeah, a lot of serial killers. Very much so. They start to think they're, and that's how they, most of them end up getting caught is because they get sloppy because they don't think anyone can catch But too them. cocky. In order to celebrate, he once again set out to find another victim. This time, his target was once again a child. Nine-year-old Rosa Olinger. And trigger warning here, guys. Peter snatched her off of a public footpath, and like with Apollonia, he dragged her off into the bushes. He strangled her until she was unconscious before once again using his iron scissors to stab her repeatedly. This is, this is a rough part. Horrifically, Peter mutilated the girl's genitals before finally stabbing her through the heart and then through the temple, puncturing her brain. He did this, no doubt, in an effort to make certain his victim was dead this time so as not have, have to have a repeat of what happened with Apollonia. Who could po- a survivor that could possibly identify him, right? Right. With Rose's body, Peter took a little more effort to make sure she wouldn't be discovered so easily. He pulled her into a bush underneath a bridge where he doused her remains in an accelerant and lit her on fire. Mm. By Peter's own admission, he climaxed here yet again due to this fire. Wow. He's just a monster. These are the kind of people that just need to be put down. Yeah. You know? Five days later, on February 13th, Peter came upon... Talk about an MO that's all over the place. Peter came upon 45-year-old Rudolf Scheer, a gentleman who bore absolutely no resemblance to any of, of his previous victims. He was simply a victim of opportunity to the increasingly unpredictable killer. Rudolph was accosted and stabbed repeatedly in the back. Crying out in pain, Rudolph twisted around to face his attacker. Just as he did, Peter plunged his iron scissors into one of Rudolph's eyes and then the other before stabbing him in the temple. Peter made it a point to confess at a later time that he achieved no orgasm from this murder. Just an absolute monster. That would make him... Have homosexual tendencies, I'm, I'm, and that is probably what he wanted to make sure that everybody this was knew. Not sexual because it was a man. Jeez. From March to July, Peter claims that he attacked and strangled four women to death. Peter claims to have tossed their bodies into the Rhine River. I wish I could give you their names, maybe how they died, but there's no records of their death. Whether or not he's telling the truth is up for debate. But for his next crime, unfortunately, there is more than enough evidence to back his story. In August of 1929, Peter ran into a girl named Maria Hahn. Somehow, Peter charmed her and she agreed to spend some time with him. After having a nice day together, she was convinced to accompany Peter out of the city to enjoy some nature together, perhaps some stargazing, right? Sounds so romantic. She thought it was a date. Once she was alone with him in a meadow only a few miles outside of town, Peter attacked her. This one, to me, is particularly difficult because this poor girl endured a long, drawn-out attack and was lucid for all of it. For an hour, 
Peter alternated between raping, strangling, and stabbing her with his iron scissors, keeping her just barely alive for it all. And you may have been wondering where he got the nickname the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Well, it all started here with poor Maria. Peter decided to drink her blood from her stab wounds. And not just a little bit of blood. He drank until he was vomiting blood. Finally, after he was finished with her, he stabbed Maria in the temple. He would later say that this was his, quote, perfect kill. And because he felt such a closeness, not to Maria, but to her murder, he didn't want her corpse to be identified quickly. It belonged to him, right? Mm -hmm. So right there in the field, he dug a shallow grave and placed her inside and left. After a few days, Peter returned to Maria's makeshift grave to revisit her body. Peter actually attempted to nail Maria's body to a tree as a sort of mockery of the crucifixion of Christ. Wow. But her now stiffened remains proved to be too difficult for him to maneuver. So after taking some, we'll call it liberties, with his, her decaying corpse, he would eventually rebury her. She wouldn't be discovered until that November, three months after he had murdered her. Disappointed that he was not receiving the public notoriety that he felt he deserved as a godlike murderer, he wrote an anonymous letter to the Dusseldorf police and confessed to Maria Hahn's murder, as well as her attempted crucifixion. He even mentioned that in the letter. In the letter, he also included a hand-drawn map guiding them to where Maria's remains could be found. Wow. I know. He's just mind-blowing. I have lack of words most of this whole while. That's why I just keep saying, wow. <laughs> I mean, what else could you say? Right? Uh, just nothing. Ugh. But in the meantime, Peter had learned via the local newspapers that they were connecting his crimes due to the weapon that he was using. So he decided to switch it up forensically at this point. He decided to switch from using his iron scissors to using a knife. So on August 21st, he set out with his new knife in hand, ready to confuse the investigation. At random, the first victim he selected was an 18-year-old. His next was a 30-year-old man, followed by a 37-year-old woman. All three of these victims were all stabbed repeatedly and seriously wounded. However, none of them were killed in these blitz attacks, thankfully. In fact, all three victims were hospitalized together. That's how quickly they were attacked, like back to back to back. All three told police that their attacker was a middle-aged man with dark hair and unremarkable in every way. And not one word was ever spoken during their attacks. So ultimately, even with three survivors, the police had nothing to go on. He was a just a generic average guy with dark hair, middle age that literally describes everybody in Germany. It right? Said nothing. This left Peter free to continue his reign of terror, and this brings us back to his n- next grisly crime. Once again, I'm issuing a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about the murder of two children. Oh lord! This one is particularly horrible. Three days after his blitz knife attack, attacks, excuse me, Peter was loitering around a fairground in the Dusseldorf, 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 like is that a new town? Dusseldorf suburb of 
Flehe, I think is how you say it. F L E H E. Flehe? 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 I don't know. Anyways, it was there that he spotted two carefree little girls walking away from enjoying a fun day at the fair. He followed the children until there was no one around, and then he approached them with a smile. Both orphans, Louise Lindzen was 14 years old, and she was with her foster sister, Gertrude Hommacher, who was only five. Yeah. The pair happily chatted with the friendly stranger for a while before he took out his wallet, handed Louise some money, and asked her if she would be kind enough to run, run to a nearby store and grab him a pack of cigarettes. And as a thank you, Peter even offered to pay Louise a few extra dollars for her trouble. Louise, excited to have some extra pocket money, readily agreed. So off she went, leaving her little foster sister, Gertrude, in the care of Peter Curtin. <laughs> Peter Curtin, who you wouldn't let watch your goldfish for 30 minutes. No. Once Louise was a safe distance away, Peter savagely cut her throat with his new weapon of choice, his knife, before callously tossing her body in the tall grass and waiting patiently for his intended victim, Louise, to return with his cigarettes. Immediately, she noticed that her little foster sister, when she came back, she noticed her little foster sister was nowhere in sight. But before she could inquire as to her whereabouts, Peter grabbed her by the throat. After Peter cut Louise's throat, he proceeded to drink her blood from the wound. This time, he was disappointed that the blood wasn't flowing fast enough for his liking, so he dug his teeth into Louise's neck and literally ripped a chunk of flesh from her neck. Wow. Forever sealing his reputation as one of the most vicious vampire serial killers in history. Yeah. Ugh. He was... A monster. It's the only word you can use to describe this dude. After he was done with the still alive Louise, Peter repeatedly stabbed her in the chest and stomach, putting an end to her horrific and terrorizing ordeal. This time, Peter didn't even bother concealing Louise's body. He just left her in the field to be discovered. Just done with her. Yeah, done. Ugh. Throughout the month of September, Peter made two more attempts at murder. Both of these victims thankfully survived. He's, he's, he's he does a, this a lot, doesn't he's he? He's an awful human being, yet he's a shitty killer. Yeah, he's, he's not like, very good. That makes it like six. I wonder seven if he's these, left alive? these victims who survived, if he got if he got spooked somehow. Or maybe he wasn't fully in his zone and he was just like, yeah. just wanted to inflict pain. Yeah, maybe. It's, he's not it's doing the say. sadistic, nasty I shit. Think, or it might be more self-serving. If he keeps him alive and he gets away with it, that yeah, just it, reaffirms no, might, his godlike status. It might be all of it, right? I know. He I might not have the urges as strong. He might just want to inflict pain and not... Because mm-hmm. he's not doing the sick shit to them. He's just stabbing the shit out of them. Well, Peter was definitely becoming frustrated after i think these he meant to kill but he just failed because he was becoming frustrated and his temper was fraying so he decided to switch up his weapon yet again and this time instead of using his knife he decided to use a hammer oh ida reuter i think is how you say her last name she was new to dusseldorf and had just arrived 
in the city looking for work. Well, Peter met her at the train station. He was probably loitering around the train station. And he offered to buy her a drink and show her around the city that he knew so well. And she readily agreed. Strolling down the Rhine River out of the blue, Peter hit Ida over the head with a swing of his hammer, causing her to lose consciousness. As soon as she came to, she was in the middle of a brutal assault. Peter hit her over the head with the hammer again and again until he was sure that she was dead. His next victim would be Elizabeth Dorier on October the 11th. Once again, he met Elizabeth at the train station, and once Peter had Elizabeth alone, he assaulted her and beat her repeatedly about the head with his hammer. Her body was discovered the following morning by a dog walker. She was still breathing and miraculously she would survive this vicious attack. After two hammer attacks, Peter decided to return back to his trusty iron scissors, the OG of all of his tools. He felt like they're just not getting the job. He said that he felt a kinship to his iron scissors. That's what he started with. His next victim would be a child yet again, five-year-old Gertrude Alberman. The little girl had gotten herself lost when she was let out to play, and Peter had seen her and offered to help her find her way back home. But of course, he had no intention of helping the little girl. As soon as he was out of view with her from the public, he stabbed little Gertrude in the temple with the scissors before stabbing her repeatedly in the stomach and chest. She's a baby. Yes. Oh. He then picked up her little body and dumped her into a patch of nettles before fleeing. Through the month of March in 1930, Peter would attack 10 different people in his usual random blitz attack styles, causing permanent disabilities in many of them. Permanent disabilities. But for some reason, he killed none of them. 10 people. What the fuck is the town doing after a year of this? We're talking like 20 plus people now. It's crazy. They're just doing nothing. Well, you brought that up and that's my next point. Good. Meanwhile, the investigation against him had taken finally a more serious turn. Ernst Ginnett, the chief inspector at the Berlin Police Department. That's a funny name. Ernst. Ernst. Yeah. So he was the chief inspector at the Berlin Police Department. He was brought in to try to catch the elusive vampire of Dusseldorf, or they were also calling him the monster of Dusseldorf. Well, I mean, that fits too. Yeah, all sorts of names. He actually seemed to be rather ahead of his, Ernst, that is, seemed to be rather ahead of his time as an investigator in the 30s. He pulled in a sketch artist to do a composite drawing of the killer using various details from the surviving victims, And he even used some early behavioral forensic psychology techniques to build a suspect profile. Okay. Not too bad. He also pursued every lead that came his way. Like every lead. By the end of the investigation, over 9,000 different people were interviewed and re-interviewed, some of them, by various police departments. But sadly, none of those leads were painting out. The trouble was that there was no connection between any of the victims. There was nothing that the victims had in common. Gender, race, age. No, they're just purely random. There was no robberies. There was no driving force behind their attacks. So sadly, the only way that Peter Curtin was going to be brought to justice was if he slipped up. And that brings us 
to Maria Budlick. And guys, this is quite the twist. Okay. (laughs) From start to finish. Okay, so Maria wasn't from Dusseldorf. She was from Cologne, and she was looking for work. So she arrived at the Dusseldorf train station. We all know Peter likes to hang out there. She met a man, not Peter Curtin. She met another man who offered to show her around town. And since she had no idea where she was going, she kindly accepted his offer. When the pair reached an abandoned park, this guy tried to get Maria to enter the park with him. But because she had heard stories of the vampire of Dusseldorf, she was like, no way am I going in there alone with you. It's not going to happen. How, how, how does anyone travel there willingly right now? You know what? I need to work. I'm going to go to that town where there's a vampire. Don't go to Dusseldorf. So the pair begin to argue back and forth. He's trying to force her into the park when another man steps in and saved her from this guy. Guess who that guy was? Peter Curtin stepped in to save Maria from this guy. my victim. Yeah. So she was like, oh my God, you're my hero. Thank you. And, um, He was like, well, do you want to go have dinner with me at my apartment? And she said, absolutely. And she did. Side note, Peter and August are still married. Okay. I don't know if you forgot about August. I I sort of did, but I didn't. But she wasn't at the apartment when he brought Maria back for dinner. Okay. So at dinner, he plied Maria with lots of wine, and then he took her into the Grafenberg Woods where he attacked her viciously horribly then this is very strange after he was done with the sexual assault for some reason he just brought her back to the train station and gave her directions on how to get to where she was going and left and she was like what the this is crazy so he left maria at the train station well maria did not report this rape to the police because she fully believed that the cops would think Maybe that she's a prostitute or she was asking for it and she was new to town, you know? Right, right, right. Um, However, Maria would write a letter divulging the horrific details of her encounter to her girlfriend because it was weighing on her. So she wrote a letter to her friend back home explaining what happened. Well, Maria sealed the letter, stamped it, and mailed it. By some twist of fate, she addressed the letter incorrectly. And because of that, of course, the letter wouldn't be mailed, Right. The letter ended up on a desk of a postal clerk who just out of curiosity opened it to read to see if she could ascertain the correct address of where to send it. And while she was reading this horrific account of the letter's author, she was like, I need to hand this to the police. This is messed up. Yeah. So she did. (laughs) She handed it to the police. And Chief Inspector Gennett read the letter and was like, this is our guy. This is definitely our guy. So they found Maria and asked if she could give them any details about her attacker. And she was like, I can do you one better. I know where he lives. I can take you to his apartment. (laughs) And she did. (laughs) Like, is that not insane? That's crazy. I couldn't wait to tell you that part. So police went to the apartment. Peter wasn't there at the time, but August was. And this time she wasn't so quick to stand by her man. I mean, after all that, he's accused of all that. So with her help, Peter Curtin was arrested at 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 gunpoint while walking out of a church, no less. Okay. He didn't put up a fight, and he for sure didn't hold back 
when he was brought in for questioning. They never do. No, never do. He was. It's almost like they're so glad to be unburdened by it. They I don't want know. to tell their story. They want to become famous. Absolutely. In total, Peter Curtin confessed to 68 separate crimes, nine murders, and 31 attempted murders, though investigators were confident there were more. I am too. I think that there's probably more. Oh, yeah. Before trial, Peter pled not guilty by reason of insanity. However, thankfully, the jury didn't buy it. He was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to death for each one of his crimes. While in prison awaiting his death sentence, Peter did something a little odd. No. He wrote to the families of his victims offering his apologies. What? Yeah, that's weird. Okay. First, it's first for me. Hadn't seen that before. Um, but don't get soft form. He's he's still a monster. Oh, no one's soft form. This is confusing. On the day of his death, Peter proved just what a monster he still was. He was escorted out to the guillotine. They use guillotine, which essentially is like an apparatus they use to behead you, right? Yeah, it's a giant razor blade, basically. And as he stood before it, he asked the priest and his psychiatrist, who was on either side of him, he said, after my head is cut off, will I be able to hear for at least a moment? And the psychiatrist was like, dude, I don't, I don't know. I've never had my head chopped off. Uh, yeah, we don't know, guy. And Peter replied, to hear the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck, that would be a pleasure to end all pleasures, end quote. Fucking weirdo. So even faced with his own death, Peter wanted to derive pleasure from it. <sighs> okay, anyways. He died. Finally, get this. After his execution, Peter was taken, his body was taken for science, and his head was bisected and mummified to preserve it. His brain was removed and examined for any apparent abnormality. There was no evidence of anything out of the ordinary other than an enlarged thymus gland, and that wouldn't account for anything other than perhaps some benign autoimmune disease, right? It's not going to make you a psychopath, in right, other words. Right, right, right. But anyways, after the end of World War II, American troops, we know, looted much of Germany, right? And one of them came back to America with Peter's mummified head. Oh. If you want to go see Peter's head, Patrick, you just need to go to Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. And we can see his head. Like it's the real... Like it's his head, yeah. The Amer an American troop brought it back. Did he know what he had or was he just like... I'm sure it was labeled. Oh. Because, you know, it was national... He was nationally known back then. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. <laughs> that's... It's a tourist attraction for all tourist attractions, I guess. I'm okay with not seeing it. Yeah, I'm good without it. Although, if I ever find myself in that area, I might be tempted to be like, I might go see this. I mean, I'm not going to go, you know. I'm not going to plan a trip to do it, but if I'm in the area and I'm around and i got nothing else to do, I might, I might go venture. When are you going to be in the area of Wisconsin Dells? <laughs> I'm not. That's my point. I'm just kidding. That's my point, though. I'm just saying stupid stuff because I'm nervous because this was a nerve-wracking episode. It's awkward and creepy and weird and disturbing. And I need a hug. I need to sit in the, a fetal position and <laughs> <laughs> suck my thumb. That's why I spent 45 minutes of this just going, wow. Because I had nothing else to say. I didn't want to do my normal routine and just sound like a dumbass when this dude's just literally doing some awful shit. Oh, he's the worst. Like, the worst. My God. I always say that. 
This is the worst. Yeah, this this is one's the worst. worse than the last one. It is. Wor- well, yeah. But we've been going easy on him, so I had to do it to him. Doing fucking Disney stories for him. I had to do it to him. <laughs> and giving him them Disney episodes. But it's good to be back. Good to be I back. I feel in my zone. Good. And You're uh, in your zone on this one. Yeah. A good one. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's a good story. <laughs> no, it was a well-told story. It was a shitty story, but it was well-told. Put it that way. I kept looking over at you, just staring at me. I'm like, what the fuck? That's all I kept saying in my head. Like, what the f-? And you're like, and then he did this. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I know. Even the dog was quiet. Like, oh. <laughs> she, like, ran away and cocooned herself in the bed. I'm like, blame nope. you, Coco. Well, anyways, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And I know this is a lengthier one. For uh, sticking with us till the end. Hope it was worth it. It was. And um, I hope you can sleep tonight because I know that I'll be awake. That's for sure. We love you so much. Be good to each other and we will see you next time.